Historical note before we begin the next three episodes. In this episode, we'll be covering the following three events. The invasion and subjugation of Israel by King Eglon of Moab in 1302 BC, which results in many hardships, including a famine which forced Elimelech and his wife Naomi to flee Bethlehem to Moab with their two sons in 1294 BC. And we'll conclude with what is called the Sodomy of Benjamin in 1290 BC. Each of these events are interrelated within the context of Israel's history. In the next episode, we'll cover the deliverance of Israel in the hands of Judge Ehud in 1284 BC. In the next episode after this will be the return of Naomi with her daughter-in-law, as recorded in the book of Ruth in the same year. All right, here we go. After a long series of battles, a young Benjamite, a hero of the battles named Ehud, stood looking off a mountaintop, staring down on the land and the Moabites who covered the land, and considered his fallen friends from their disastrous civil war, where his tribe was nearly destroyed, and what did they fight for? Some Levite, whose wife was abused by the Gibeonites. Sitting alone, pondering in his heart many things, he pulled out his left-handed sling, considered how it wasn't working, and at that moment he decided in his heart he would move on from the use of this sling. Yes, he needed a new weapon. He would forge and fashion a double-edged sword and make it larger than all of the others. He would make it a cubit long. He would take his time and fashion it for a single purpose, to avenge himself on God's enemies. Yes, he would take his time and forge a sword to avenge himself on the Lord's enemies. He would take his time. Who cares if it takes weeks or months? He would heat the metal with fire and bang it and forge it and sharpen it daily until it was sharper and more powerful than any weapon he had ever seen. Yes, he pondered in his heart. No, it would be God who would use him. God will use him to avenge himself on their enemies. And when the perfect time would come, all would change overnight. God will avenge himself on his enemies. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. This is the Message to King Podcast. Episode 40, The Sodomy of Benjamin. Judges 3.12 Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Moab is considered the mountainous region of the country of modern Jordan. The Moabites were considered a people group founded and settled by one of the descendants of Lot, Abraham's brother. Moab, with the help of two other people groups, the Amalekites, a nomadic people in southern Israel and the Sinai, and the Ammonites, the other people group that descended from Lot from modern-day Jordan as well. They joined forces to attack Israel. 
They converged on the city of Palms, the location of modern-day Jericho, and took it. Here's where Eglon placed his palace and reigned over Israel. Here's Josephus' account of Eglon. When Othniel was dead, the affairs of the Israelites fell again into disorder. And while they neither paid to God the honor due him, nor were obedient to the laws, their afflictions increased. Till Eglon, king of the Moabites, did so greatly despise them on account of disorders of their political government, that he made war upon them and overcame them in several battles, and the most courageous to submit to him, and entirely subdued their army and ordered them to pay him tribute. And when he had them build him a royal palace at Jericho, he omitted no method whereby he might distress them, and indeed he reduced them to poverty for eighteen years. Eglon's oppression was very great of Israel. I see him like a cruel despot, taking all that he could and required through force annual tribute from each of the tribes, which we will see Ehud arrive to pay his respect some time from now. A tribal oppressor he was, and the Bible has a very interesting description of this guy. It says he was very fat. For the Bible to say someone was fat, he must have had a serious eating problem. But it isn't, it's more of a picture. Eglon, whose name means cow, was consuming all the produce of the land and growing out of proportion due to Israel's unfaithfulness. Their effort and work was being taken by another. Their blessings were being stolen by another. All they worked for was being taken from them. It goes further. In addition to Eglon's oppression, famines were occurring and other hardships, which leads to the beginning of the story of Ruth. Eight years into Eglon's rule, famine was taking its toll and people were leaving Israel. In fact, one family was so disparaged that they left their land allotted to them and their inheritance in Israel. Ruth chapter 1 In those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the name of his two sons was Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. The reason people were moving to Moab was because Eglon was from Moab, and his country wasn't experiencing famine. In fact, they were living in abundance because they were living off of Israel's land and spoils. Moab was filled with the treasures stolen from Israel. Next, as Eglon continued his oppression of the Israelites, a disturbance breaks out in Benjamin, specifically in the city of Gibeah, and it appears that Eglon has no desire to interfere. Why would he care if the Israelites destroy themselves? Now we rewind to give the roots of this civil war or disturbance that breaks out in Gibeah. It begins with another Levite traveling from Bethlehem. This time it is another selfish Levite who is about to birth a civil war with a few very poor decisions. Remember that Levite from Bethlehem who is now the idol worshiper leader for the tribe of Dan. He was leaving Bethlehem as well. Also, Elimelech and Naomi just left Bethlehem. There's lots of action going on in and around Bethlehem. Here's the account of the Levite traveling from Bethlehem. Judges 19. 
In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. So the story starts small with the distorted Levite who has a wife, or let's call her for what she is. She's a concubine. This tells you a lot about this Levite. This guy's pretty bad. I mean, he's a Levite. First of all, Levites are not supposed to possess property or have a land inheritance because they were God's people. And here a Levite who is now owning a woman and devaluing her as his property. You definitely don't see this in the life of Axel or Rahab or the daughters of Zephalahad. Here is what Josephus says about this situation. There was a Levite, a man of a vulgar family that belonged to the tribe of Ephraim, and dwelt there. And This man married a wife from Bethlehem, which is a place belonging to the tribe of Judah. Now he was very fond of this wife and overcome with her beauty, but he was unhappy in this, that he did not meet with her like a return of affection for her. For she was averse to him, which did more inflame his passion for her, so that he they quarreled one another perpetually. And at last the woman was so disgusted at these quarrels that she left her husband and went to her parents in the fourth month. Alright, so the Levite goes to Bethlehem to retrieve his wife because she had left him because they basically couldn't get along. And after five days in Bethlehem, the Levite gets his concubine back and heads away from Bethlehem to a remote city in the land of Ephraim. Refusing to stop at Jerusalem for the night, they made it to Gibeah to spend the night, where they go to the town square, and a local takes them in for the night. All seems okay. They're sitting and drinking and having a normal time until the next scene, where the entire story goes completely south. I mean, really bad. Judges 19.22 while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so that we may have relations with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can do whatever you wish to them. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him, so they took his concubine and sent her outside and abused her all night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak the woman went back to the house where the master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, and with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. So we have to stop here, and, and I ask you, the listener, what, what does it sound like? If you say Sodom and Gomorrah, you're, you got it right. This is nearly the same scene. So I ask, how could this be? If Sodom and Gomorrah was supposed to be one of the worst cases of depravity and examples from the planet and the history of man, of the depravity of man, how could we be here again so quickly? 
The answer is Gibeah. Gibeah was the sole survivor of Joshua's invasion because they fooled the elders of Israel into making a peace treaty with Israel because they believed they were not Canaanites, but they were. When Joshua destroyed the armies and the cities of the Amorites and the Canaanites and their cities, he overthrew demonic principalities which controlled the region with the exception of Gibeah. When Gibeah was captured, these demonic influences remained and still controlled large portions of the territory. This scene is indicative of the hundreds of years of demonic influence and aggressive, horribly aggressive, demonic strongholds that had not been destroyed because of Joshua's error. This scene was a manifestation of all the evil that remained in the city. So in this context, should we consider that God had to destroy the city as well, just like Sodom and Gomorrah? Even if judgment was forthcoming, I believe Israel took it into their own hands. And we will discuss this further. Now back to the Levite, it's interesting what Josephus says next about this concubine or wife, however you want to describe her. The men let her go at daybreak. So she came to the place where she had been entertained, under great affliction at what had happened, and was very sorrowful upon occasion of what she had suffered, and does not look her husband in the face for shame, for she concluded that he would never forgive her for what she had done. So she fell down. And gave up the ghost. Isn't it interesting how Josephus said that she gave up the ghost? Aren't the old writers, you know, their style's pretty cool. So this account tells you a little bit more about this Levite. His concubine believed she had no worth in living since her master would not forgive her. And seriously, what man would surrender his wife to certain abuse and death to these wretched men? Last episode, Othni was willing to die for his wife. What an opposite scenario. If marriage is a perfect picture of intimacy we have with God, this Levite was far from the one who created him. He was completely not a peacemaker. Check out his crazy, crazy, crazy next steps. The Levite wants justice regardless of the bloodshed and actions that were required for this justice. Comparing this scene to Sodom and Gomorrah, where was the angels that were at Lot's house in Sodom? Well, if the Levite was serving God, I would like to suggest God would have sent his angels to blind the enemies of God. But this Levite surrendered his own wife to torture and abuse to save his own life. The next part is truly disgusting. Judges 19.29 When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb into twelve parts, and sent them to all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, Such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. All right, great. Good job, Mr. Levite. He had little relationship with God. He devalued people, gave up his wife for his own life, and now he cuts her in 12 pieces and cites the people that commit themselves to an armed conflict for his own personal revenge. What is going on in Israel? No doubt Eglon was getting reports of this disturbance, and he was watching with alarm as Israel was spurned to armed conflict. Hundreds of thousands of people were showing up with swords. But to his delight, it wasn't directed towards him, but themselves. Judges 20, 
Then all Israel from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people, the tribes of Israel, took their places in the assembly of God's people, 400,000 men armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Then the Israelites said, Tell us how this awful thing happened. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah in Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They raped my concubine, and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance, because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. Now all you Israelites, speak up and tell me what you have decided to do. All right, so check this guy out. He never told the assembly he surrendered his wife to rape and torture because he wanted to save his own life. In turn, Israel decides to rally against the tribe of Benjamin, which protected the people of the city of Gibeah. Judges 20.12 The tribes of Israel sent messengers throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now turn those wicked men of Gibeah over to us so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordmen from their towns in addition to 700 able young men from the living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers there were 700 select troops who were left-handed each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fit for battle. So the sides of the conflict were assembled. And what happens next is interesting. At this point, it never says that the Israelites have inquired of God up until this point. Judges twenty eighteen. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Benjamites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go up first. The next morning, the Israelites got up and pitched camp near Gibeah. The question wasn't, should we go to war? But instead, who should go up first? Was this war condoned by God, considering the wickedness of Gibeah? Judgment was in order, but through Israel, maybe not. Or in this generation, maybe not. But their blood and mind were made up, and blood had to be shed, and justice had to be done. Completely outnumbered, Benjamin holds their own, but why Benjamin sticks up for the Gibeonites and doesn't just pursue justice of the perpetrators alone, we don't know. Judges 20, 20. The Israelites went out to fight the Benjamites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. The Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. But the Israelites encouraged one another and again took up positions where they had stationed themselves the first day. The Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord. They said, Shall we go up to, again to fight the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites? The Lord answered, Go up against them. Then the ben Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. This time, when the Benjamites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. At this point, Benjamin is completely destroying Israel, one tribe against eleven. 
The casualties are astounding in only two days of fighting. To relate this death toll to American history, in three days fighting at Gettysburg, both the Union and Confederate armies each lost under 25,000 men. These guys in the Bronze Age really mean business when it comes to war. And it gets worse. Now Israel gets it right. They go to Bethel and the entire army seeks God. Judges 20, 26. Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. And in those days the Ark of the Covenant of God was there, with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. They asked, Shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites, or not? What's fascinating to me is that Phineas, our hero from two previous episodes, he's still around. He's an old-timer now. Remember, he's the guy with the blessing of a covenant of peace? He's been inquired of three times, and the Israelites have asked him three questions to ask God. Once, and it was the very first time, they said, Who shall attack? The second time they said, Shall we attack? And the third time they said, Shall we do battle again? It's too bad they didn't inquire the right questions from the beginning. It's quite scary how Israel reacted. What if they asked of Phineas from the beginning, should we go to war with Benjamin? The answer probably would have been most likely Phineas himself arriving to sort out any difficulties, for he had a covenant of peace. Justice would have been targeted without the death of innocence. But he answers the third question now. God will give them into your hand. And I ask you, the listener, what are your prayers to God? Are they tainted with colored lenses? Are we seeking the heart of God before seeking his guidance? Or are we looking for the answers to the questions that God is not even asking? Are we setting God up to answer multiple choice questions outside of his will without the option, none of the above. Here's the conclusion of the matter with Benjamin. The tactics are very similar to Joshua's moves at Ai. The Israelites attack Gibeah and fake a retreat away from the city as a force was hiding out to make a sneak attack. Joshua twenty thirty four. Then 10,000 of Israel's able young men made a frontal attack on Gibeah, the fighting was so intense and heavy that the Benjamites did not realize how near disaster they were. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and on that day the Israelites struck down 25,100 Benjamites, all armed with swords. Then the Benjamites saw that they were beaten. So the men of Israel had given way before Benjamin because they relied on the ambush they had set near Gibeah. Those who had been in ambush made a sudden dash into Gibeah, spread out and put the whole city to the sword. The Israelites had arranged with the ambush that they would send up a cloud of smoke from the city, and when the Israelites would counterattack. The Benjamites had begun to inflict casualties in the Israelites, about 30, and they said, We are defeating them as before. But when the column of smoke began to rise from the city, the Benjamites turned and saw the whole city going up in smoke. Then the Israelites counterattacked, and the Benjamites were terrified because they realized that disaster had come on them. So they fled before the Israelites in the direction of the wilderness, but they could not escape the battle. And the Israelites who came out of the town cut them down there. 
They surrounded the Benjamites, chasing them, and easily overran them in the vicinity of Gibeah on the east. 18,000 Benjamites fell, all of them valiant warriors. As they turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, the Israelites cut down 5,000 men among the roads. They kept pressing after the Benjamites as far as Gidon and struck down 2,000 more. And on that day, 25,000 Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters. But 600 of them turned and fled in the direction of the rock of Rimmon, where they stayed four months. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across they set on fire. It's awful to see the chaos in Israel at this point. The slaughter is so awful, only 600 Benjamite men survive. No women or children are spared. They hide out in the hills, and Israel mourns and repents of their own actions until they petition for peace and find wives for the 600 Benjamites, for they don't want their family line and that tribe to disappear from Israel. And it's very peculiar the ways that they find wives for the 600 Benjamites. Of the remaining Benjamites, there must have been one young man among them who was a hewer from the battles, whose name was Ehud. And at this point, we get the fictionalized account of Ehud at the beginning of the episode. And it is here, or earlier most likely, that Ehud begins to forge the sword that becomes famous for a political assassination in the next episode. To conclude this episode, there is a symbolic message in these scenes at the end of Judges and in the book of Ruth. It's interesting to note that the Levite who ran off with the tribe of Dan left the city of Bethlehem and headed in the direction of Ephraim. In this account, the Levite who went back for his concubine left the city of Bethlehem and headed in the territory direction of Ephraim. Also, Naomi and her husband and two sons left Bethlehem and went east in the direction of Moab. The first Levite led an entire tribe and later a nation in idolatry. The second Levite ended up inciting a civil war which led to the death of thousands. Naomi left Bethlehem and went to Moab where her husband and two sons will later die. There is a common string here. Leaving Bethlehem results in death. And if this pattern isn't freaky enough, when Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt, Herod orders the death of every child under the age of three in Bethlehem. Symbolically, leaving Bethlehem results in death. Why is this secret message hidden in the Bible? This pattern or string has to be tied to the meaning of the word Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. When we leave the house of bread, death results. Jesus would later say he is the bread of life. When we leave the word of God, when we leave God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ, we are led in disarray and destruction by the wicked one. We must never leave the bread of life, Jesus Christ, for he is our sanctuary and fortress. It's interesting, a few podcasts from now, we'll be talking about Ruth and her future husband, who is the son of Rahab, the one who was saved from certain destruction and the one who learned that God is her fortress at Jericho. While all sorts of destruction occurs when people leave the house of bread, who is the one that is remaining in Bethlehem? None other than Rahab and her son Boaz, who remain with the bread of life in the house of bread. 
Their reward was an incredible spiritual inheritance being part of the line of King David and later Jesus Christ himself. And I ask you, the listener, where do you make your habitation, your home? Is it with the house of bread and Jesus, the bread of life? Do you find joy and peace and fulfillment and life in the house of the one who created you? Or have you left this wholesome place? He's calling back his children to the house of bread. Jesus would later say, Ask, seek, and knock, and the door will be opened to you. He would go further in Revelation and say, Behold, I stand at the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And I ask you, have you welcomed fresh bread into your life today? I beg of you, don't leave the place of his safety. Welcome him and you will find refreshing and peace and a spiritual inheritance. Here's a brief announcement. If you're an internet radio listener, Message to Kings is now available on TuneIn Radio. Also, check out the website, historypodcasters.com, and check out other history podcasters on this site as well if you're interested. And if you're a long-term listener, I ask you to log on to this site and rate this podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we discuss one of the most symbolic stories in the Bible as we discuss Judge Ehud, a Benjamite who arises to deliver Israel from the hands of King Eglon. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question, or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.